the reading of our passage for this morning. And we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're back in verses 8 through 13 this week. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin this morning again, as we continue this morning. Father, what we are setting out to do here is so much greater than any of us understand. Pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you would speak, open eyes and ears and hearts, and that you would move us, God, toward you, whether we know you or whether we don't. God, that your word would be proclaimed, received, and that it would give us the power that we need to glorify you. We cannot do this on our own, Lord. So we trust you to do what we can't and ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Semantic satiation. Semantic satiation. That's a phenomenon whereby the uninterrupted repetition of a word eventually leads to a sense that the word has lost its meaning. Purple, 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 purple. You're like, stop it. We don't do that here. We don't do that here. Nobody to interpret. Purple. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Like you just say, you're like, what? And it just feels funny even coming out of your mouth and you're like, it doesn't make sense to you anymore. Uh, I'd say most of us have, if not all of us, just saying or hearing a word over and over and over until it just loses its meaning and sounds silly to you. Well, it's a little bit different principle, but I think we get in times or circles where we hear words so much we stop thinking about them. Or just accept them without thinking about what they really mean. Words that lose meaning or just become so cliche that we empty them of meaning and lose they lose their power due to over-familiarity. But we're not really over-familiar and we don't really know them at all. Today, we're going to focus on one such word. And I'm going to say it and there's going to be something in your head that goes, oh yeah. Gospel. Oh, yeah. We hear it all the time in church circles, don't we? The gospel. Preach the gospel. Read the gospel of John. We should be gospel-centered. That's the gospel truth. What's that mean? What is the gospel? Well, from our text today, 
we get a really good picture and explanation of what the gospel is. And we would do well, each of us individually and all of us collectively, we would do well to pay attention and to engage what the Holy Spirit of God is saying through His Word here today. It is good gospel truth. Now, if you were here last week, or if you weren't, I still said it, um, I said that I would put a pen in verse 10 and we'd come back to it, and that's what we're doing. Um, Last week I could not not include this passage about resurrection since it was Resurrection Sunday, but I definitely bit off a chunk that was too big to chew in one message. Uh, And I knew I was doing it, that's why I said we'd come back to this. And I, I really just meant to do 10 through 13, but... 8 through 13 is going to be more appropriate for what we want to do today. So we'll start with verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, exclamation point. So again, we covered these verses last week, um, but we do want to get a deeper dive on all this stuff, and we certainly will. And I definitely wanted to go back and start in verse 8 because it gives us a good introduction to the gospel. Now be careful. Fight that satiation. Okay? Fight it. When I say gospel, press in. Don't click off. Don't throw it in neutral. Downshift and hit the gas when I say gospel. Okay? You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Trust. Run that up the flagpole and see anyway, salutes it. Um, anywho, um, So when you hear that word, engage it. So Paul's on Timothy in calling on Timothy to suffer and labor in his life and ministry to do what? To remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Now we saw last week that it was Paul's way of emphasizing the resurrection power and the eternal nature of Christ's kingdom in order to contrast for Timothy the power of God and the temporary nature of suffering here. And Paul says that these things were preached in my gospel. These truths, these pillars of strength and comfort were found in Paul's preaching and teaching of what he calls his Gospel. Now, why would he call it that? Well, let's look at Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Paul says this in his letter to the Galatians, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Sounds cultish, right? Paul is saying that the gospel that he preached was given to him, now get that, directly from Jesus himself. And he would go about spreading this gospel, spending and being spent to do so, but he didn't just start a cult with what could have been seen as a crazy guy hearing voices. He would actually later go to the apostles of Jesus, the remaining 11, I guess 12, if you count Matthias, should we, shouldn't we? I don't know. But anyway, he goes back to the apostles who had been Jesus' disciples when Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry. Paul goes back to them to make sure that what he was preaching 
was in line with what Jesus had taught them. We see that in Galatians 2, 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So... Paul says, here's what I received in this direct revelation from the same Jesus that you walked with when he was on the earth. And he's like, is, does this line up? You know, Jesus had said in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Paul's saying, here's this gospel that I received as a direct revelation. Does this match up to what Jesus told you to teach? So they agreed what Paul was preach, that, that what Paul was preaching was indeed in line with the commandments that Jesus had commissioned them to teach before he ascended into heaven. So Paul says in Galatians 2, 9 and 10, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the apostles gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul, which means they agreed that they were all laboring toward the same goal, they were all on the same team, and they agreed to the basic tent of the gospel. And they were all in on, all in on this together, even as they went to different people groups, Jews and Gentiles, proclaiming this gospel. So then, what is this gospel that they had agreed that they were all proclaiming because that's pretty important to know, right? Jared C. Wilson, a quote says, The essential message of the Bible is the gospel. Therefore, the gospel needs to be central to all we say and do as a church. Now, that's one of those statements that I think we would all add an amen to, but what does it mean? It's a monstrously huge statement to say that the gospel is the essential message of the Bible. 66 books. We're Bible people, right? We're Providence Baptist Bible Church, right? Providence Bible Church. We have put all of our eggs in the Bible basket, I've said many, many times. So to say that the Bible itself has one essential message should make that one message of primary importance, right? And the gospel is that message. So how important is the gospel in my life? In your life? In our lives? In the life of the whole world? Are there days when you don't even think about the gospel? Weeks? Months? And I'm not just saying hear the word or read it, but, but think about it. What in the world is going on here? What is this great gospel? I think we've just accepted it and we check the box when we hear the word gospel. Yeah, I know that. But how important is it in our lives individually and corporately? And again, I think we all quickly say, oh, it's very important. But if I ask you to explain the gospel, could you? Because it's not your personal testimony. Nothing wrong with your personal testimony. And it's encouraging to hear people share their personal testimonies. But that's not the gospel. What is the gospel? What what was Paul's gospel, the biblical gospel? Well, I think we can get some very important pointers here in our text today. 
and we're going to go back at the end of the message before application and collect all that we can about the gospel from this text. But for right now, let's start back in verse 10, which I said we were going to kind of focus on, which gives us a very important, albeit an extremely controversial, tenet of this gospel. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I've probably just split this room in two by reading that verse. Some people are on one side of the word elect. Some people are on the other side of the word elect. Probably. But just take this in. Let's labor. Let's strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to unite around this word. Paul, who says he received the revealing of this gospel from Jesus himself, says that he endures his suffering and all he goes through for what? For the sake of Christ? For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Yeah, we need to spend some time here. The first and most conspicuous word in all this verse, I think, is the word elect. Paul endures what he endures for the sake of the elect. Let's look at that word. This is fun. Eclectos. 23 times in the New Testament, translated as elect and chosen. Picked out, chosen, chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. Christians are called chosen or elect of God. The Messiah is called elect, as appointed by God to the most exalted office conceivable. Choice, select, i.e., the best of its kind or class, excellence preeminent, applied to certain individual Christians. Now, what I want you to see there is that, see that from 1586? So the Greek number in the Strong's Concordance is 1588, but this word 1588 is from another word, 1586, which is, oh boy, now it's from two words, we'll get to that in a second, 21 occurrences in the New Testament, translated as choose 19 times, choose out once and make choice once. This word from which the word elect is drawn from means to pick out, to choose, to pick or choose out for oneself. Choosing one out of many, i.e. Jesus choosing his disciples. Choosing one for an office of God choosing whom he judged fit, I don't like that word, to receive his favors and separated from the rest of mankind to be peculiarly his own and to be attended continually by his gracious oversight. Whoa. Israelites would have been called the elect of God the Father, choosing Christians as those whom he set apart from the irreligious multitude as dear unto himself and whom he has rendered through faith in Christ citizens in the messianic kingdom so that the ground of the choice lies in Christ and his merits only. Now, I said 1537 and 3004. We won't pull those up. But that word is from those two words... And those two words together mean to call or call by name. 
So we won't go to those definitions, but just so you know. This word is from those two words, and the word we're looking at today is from this word. Okay? Just want to get the full-orbed vision here so that we don't just blindly say, well, the elect means blank. So the elect are those who are called by name by God into his kingdom by grace through faith. I'm going to read that again. The elect are those who are called by name by God into his kingdom by grace through faith. This is who Paul endures what he endures for. This is who he's enduring for. He endures his beatings, stonings, hardships, imprisonment, and eventual death for the sake of the elect. It is his life's mission to labor for the elect. And he says in 2 Timothy 2.10, which I don't have up here, that this, well, I had it back there before, that this enduring for them is so that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He endures for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain salvation. Now what's that mean? How are people saved? You may take the definitions that we just looked at and say, well, God calls them, and you'd be right. But how does God call them? Is it a warm feeling in their hearts? Is it an, a, a mental arousal where they figure things out and then figure out, oh, God is calling me? Is it just an unveiling with a mist disappearing from off their minds and hearts? And the answer is no to all those questions. God calls his elect people into eternal life through the gospel. We saw this passage last week, but let's look at it again. Romans 1, 16 and 17, and we're going to see it at the end of the message too. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And let's look back at 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 10, where he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, and Steve mentioned this this morning, before the ages began. I'm like, where's I'm missing something? And <laughs> which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, do you see that? He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the elect. The chosen hand-picked people of God are introduced to God and their new birth through the gospel and only the gospel. 
And Paul has said that he's suffering because he won't stop preaching the gospel. Why won't he stop preaching the gospel? Because it's the only way people can be saved. So God elects, he chooses people, and God sends people to preach the gospel to those people. The people hear the gospel, they're born again, and they believe and now share in God's kingdom. They put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as their salvation. They believe that God punished their sins in the person of Jesus, and they trust that and are thus forgiven and declared not guilty for their sins since the price for those sins has been paid by Christ. And the message that gave them the information they needed was the gospel. And now back to our verse 10 in 2 Timothy 2. Let me traipse back here before all these definitions. There we go. Paul says that these people are the elect that he endures all things for. So do these elect have to hear the message? Yes. Does someone have to proclaim that message? Or does God just speak it to them magically? Someone has to proclaim the message. And we could go to Romans, how can they hear unless somebody preaches? How can somebody preach unless he's sent? Do the hearers have to decide to believe the message? Yes. Are people liable to the just punishment if they deny the message? Yes. Are the elect elected by God? Yes. Are the deniers responsible for their denying? Yes. Is this just? Yes. Is it fair? No. But you don't want fair here. Fair is every single rebel member of Adam's fallen race getting death in hell. That's fair. Why? Because we're all sinners. Every single one of us. Adam as our federal head passed sin down to all of us. No one is exempt except Christ who was born by the grace of God, by the power of God with the Holy Spirit overshadowing a human woman. Only he escapes from the curse of sin. The rest of us are born into it. So you don't want fair because fair means we all get hell. That's fair and just. But we get grace. What the elect get are grace. Is grace. What the elect gets is our our grace. What the remaining rebels get is justice. Why does God elect some and not others? Because he's God. We've seen this and talked about this many times over the years. God is the only true moral free agent in the universe. He describes himself thus to Moses in Exodus 33 verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's one of the defining factors that makes God, God. And later, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yay, that's great. 
Keeping steadfast love for thousands, yes. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yay. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we don't go yay to that, do we? Because that hurts our feelings. That's not fair. Why would God do that? Because he's God. He could not and would not be God if he didn't have the right and the ability to be gracious to whomever he chooses. He would not be God if he didn't forgive whom he chooses to forgive. He also would not be God if he cleared the guilty. So getting back to where all of this started, yes, there is an elect, chosen, hand-picked people of God. And no, it's not all people everywhere from all time. We're not universalists. The Bible does not teach universalism. The elect, chosen, hand-picked people of God is a group of people whom God has chosen for Himself in His own secret counsel. And... Those chosen elect individuals receive the new life they have been chosen to receive by hearing and by believing the gospel. Hence, Paul says he endures all the hardships so that those elect of God may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And if you'll hearken back to a couple of messages ago, we saw in 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus again before the ages began. So, God elected His chosen people to obtain salvation before the ages began. It was always the plan. Never not the plan. And then God himself took on human flesh in the person of Christ and manifested the gospel by living a perfect life, dying to pay the penalty of that people's sins, rising again to new life, and then ascending into heaven to sit on the throne of heaven until he returns one day in the future to set up his eternal physical kingdom on the earth where he will reign and rule with his elect people for eternity in justice and power. And we see glimpses of these truths in the remaining verses in our passage today, which we also looked at last week, verses 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy for, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's a mouthful. So what we have here... In this, what we said may have been a hymn or a short part of a catechism, trustworthy statement. We have a call to response to this gospel message. We have to be associated with Jesus in order to partake in his life, death, resurrection, and glorification. And we said last week that the very essence of being a Christian is union with Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We see that here. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. 
And again, we looked at this last week, so we won't spend a bunch of time here now. Our union with Christ as the elect who have placed their faith in Him for their salvation means that Jesus' death on the cross was our death to sin. He bore the penalty for our sins in His body, absorbing the full wrath of God for what we have and will do to offend a holy God. He then carried our sins to the grave in His dead body, and then bursting forth in glorious day... Up from the grave he rose again. And guess who rose with him? His people. Raised to new life to live with him now and forever. And in line with enduring and reigning with him, Jesus says this in John 10, 28-30, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's shouting ground right there. (laughs) So if we endure, since we will endure, we will also reign with him. None of the elect, hand-picked, chosen by God, will not endure. Because nobody is able to pluck them out of Christ's hands, the Father's hands. Nobody. Not even ourselves. I can't hop out. And he's never going to let me go. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so much, he's going to hold me fast. Woo! Sorry, I did it. There, okay. So if we endure, since we will endure, we will also reign with Him. And if anyone denies Jesus, Jesus will deny them. That's those who are not elect. If at the end of all things we deny knowing or trusting Jesus, Jesus will say to the denier and the faithless of verse 13, what we see in Matthew 25, 41, then He will say to those on His left, the goats, Keith Green says, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For, Paul says back in 2 Timothy, he cannot deny himself. He can't deny himself and not give justice to those who have denied and those who are faithless. He can't deny himself and say, "Ah, just come on in, it's fine. He can't do that. Remember back in Exodus, we saw that he's known to be God because of his forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And he cannot deny himself, so the final judgment will show both his grace and his justice as he forgives the elect whose sins were paid and removed by the death of Christ. And then those people put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And he'll also be known when he by no means clears the guilty who denied Jesus and refused to put their faith in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, which they will spend eternity being justly punished for. Justice calls for eternal punishment for those who sin against an infinitely holy, eternal God. The Bible does not teach that the evil will be destroyed. It says that they'll suffer for eternity. Eternal fire. And God's just wrath will further show His glory 
as the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and the only true God in all the universe. Both the grace of heaven and the wrath of hell will give us a right apprehension of this mysterious creator of all things. So now what? How do we apply all of this? Goodness gracious, I don't know. Truthfully, it's too much, too big. But imperative in all of this is a call and a command to know and understand the gospel. Because that, the gospel, is what brings all of this to light. It is the gospel which we are so prone to nod somewhat ignorantly about that alone can give anyone salvation and an understanding of God and His plan. So this is what I want to do. It's a little bit laborious, but I want you to laborious with me, okay? In an attempt to deep dive into the gospel for understanding, I want to look at our passage today. And just from our passage today, 8 to 13, 2 Timothy 2, I want to see what it tells us about the gospel. What do you think we can learn about God and His gospel from this short passage today? What aspects of the unique biblical gospel can we garner from these six verses? (laughs) It's a lot. Here we go. Let me go back to it. Mm, Man, there's a lot of Bible in there. That's good. Oh, for Pete's sake. Too much Bible. I, I don't know where I'm at. I see why John got all mixed up, but there's a start in there because it was out of order. Okay. So we're going to go just slowly bit by bit through this and see what we can learn, what we can use as a definition of the gospel for clarity, that we might see the fullness of it, that we might understand it, and that we might appropriate it into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we see is Jesus Christ. Any gospel that is to be proclaimed is to be about Jesus Christ. The gospel, the Bible, history is all about Jesus. Jesus means Savior. It's about Jesus Christ. Christ is the anointed one sent by God as the forever king. Promise, we'll get to that in a second. So he's, he's, he's Savior and he's the anointed one of God. So any time that, that the gospel is to be proclaimed, it has to include Jesus Christ. Any gospel that doesn't talk about Jesus is not the gospel. Okay? Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Which means that this Jesus that's proclaimed is proclaimed as risen from the dead, which means he did die and he came back to life. Any gospel that doesn't include resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, is not a biblical gospel. The offspring of David, we talked about this last week, he was foretold by the prophets. He was foretold to David and there was an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant set up with David by God himself as God promised that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne of God's people forever. Any gospel that doesn't proclaim Jesus Christ risen from the dead as foretold in the Old Testament leading up to the events that happened, any any gospel that was not promised is not the biblical gospel. As preached in my gospel means that we've got to preach the gospel. Any gospel that's not preached is not a biblical gospel. 
Anybody that says we don't have to preach the gospel for people to be saved, they're not preaching a biblical gospel. It has to be preached. It has to be revealed to us just as it was revealed to Paul. That's preached in my gospel for which I am suffering. Any gospel that is proclaimed that doesn't call us to suffering is not a biblical gospel. Not a prosperity gospel promising you health, wealth, and happiness and your best life right now. Now the best is yet to come. We struggle and we suffer now. We're in weak, sin-filled bodies that break down and people hate us because they hated Jesus. The gospel absolutely includes suffering. But the Word of God is not bound. God is supreme over all things earthly and human. God is omnipotent. Any gospel that doesn't include the omnipotence and supremacy of God in all things is not the biblical gospel. I'm missing verse 10. Where is it? There it is. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Any gospel that does not include God sovereignly choosing his people is not the biblical gospel. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul said it, not me. I really wrestled. Well, we'll get to that in application. So let's press on. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Any gospel that doesn't proclaim that salvation is in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone is not the biblical gospel. Any gospel that doesn't preach that we are united with Christ, that our union with Christ, us being in Him, is not the only way unto God, is not the biblical gospel. With eternal glory... Any gospel that does not proclaim that there are eternal rewards for God's people and that this thing lasts forever is not the biblical gospel. No, but we ain't done. I just got to find my place. I went too far. This thing is trustworthy. Four... If we have died with him, we also will live with him. Died with him reflects that union with him. Also, it implies that we are dead to sin. Any gospel that does not tell you that we are dead to sin is not the biblical gospel. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. Again, union with Christ, a promise of resurrection life for the believer, not just Christ which also includes that resurrection life is not just, yeah, I get to live forever and I'm not going to die. That's also power to overcome sin right now. And any gospel that doesn't give you the power to overcome sin right now because of resurrection power is not the biblical gospel. If we endure, oh, saints, any gospel that doesn't give us perseverance and say that we will endure is not the biblical gospel. Herb Hodges said, if your salvation's not secure, I don't want it. Keep it for yourself. We will endure. That's the perseverance of the saints. And since we will, we'll also reign with Him. There are eternal rewards where we will be 
co-laborers, co-reigning with Christ. We're going to spend all of eternity reigning and ruling in justice and power and grace because of who Christ is and who we are in Him. We're going to reign with Him. There are eternal rewards. Any gospel that doesn't promise eternal rewards is not a biblical gospel. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. Any gospel that says that God is faithless is not a biblical gospel. That probably doesn't have to be said, but I think it needs to be said anyway. And if we're faithless, He is still good. If somebody doesn't express faith in Christ, it does not change the goodness or the faithfulness of God. God didn't fail. God was not mean. God was not bad because somebody is faithless. Do not accuse God of wrongdoing for people who are faithless. Any gospel that proclaims that God is unjust or unfair because he didn't choose everybody and doesn't pardon the faithless is not preaching a biblical gospel. If we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is God. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Which shows us the responsibility of man to believe and to trust the gospel. Any gospel that does not include the responsibility of man is not the biblical gospel. Charles H. Spurgeon said, When God saw Jesus in the sinner's place, he did not spare him. And when he finds the unregenerate without Christ, he will not spare them. We have a responsibility. We're faithless, he remains faithful. God is faithful. God cannot deny himself. He is the great I am. You tell them I am sent you, Moses. And I am who I am. He is unchanging, immutable. Thank God he never changes. That the eternal plan which was set before the ages began has always been, will always be the plan. Thank God. And any gospel that doesn't proclaim that is not a biblical gospel. All that from these six verses. And there's more. There's 66 books, y'all. And they give us a bigger, greater, more in-depth picture of this beautiful, wonderful, powerful gospel that we are commanded to believe and trust in. (laughs) We would do well to press in. So, let's go for application. Three G's. God, good, gospel. I didn't miss words there. I wasn't forming a sentence. I was giving three application points. But that's a pretty good sentence. God, good gospel. God, good gospel. Application point number one is God. God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything. Everything. He is the goal, He's the standard, and He is the purpose of it all. 
And when we look at any doctrine, especially as something as expansive and important as the gospel, we have to start with God. The point of all of this gospel is to get us to God so we can know and enjoy Him. Piper spoke while we were at T4G, and he says that God is a billion times greater than getting forgiveness for your sins. Think about that. Who's glad that you're forgiven? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, ooh, that's nice. Shoo! And God is a billion times greater than having your sins forgiven. Our joy, our pleasure, our life found in Him is the point of the gospel. Not just getting forgiven and going to heaven. Because heaven wouldn't be heaven if God wasn't there. If Christ wasn't there. A godless heaven is hell. So rejoice that your sins are forgiven, but let that point you to the person of God. The point of it all is to get us to God so that He gets all the glory for it. So that we all look to Him and say, Wow! Look at you! It's you that my longing heart has been seeking all this time. And now I get to see you in the person of Christ. And I get to enjoy you for eternity. That's the point. I think we have reduced the gospel to getting our sins forgiven. But there's so much more than that. We get God. We get God. He has given himself to us. John Piper again. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Not in our forgiveness. Again, forgiveness is wonderful. I'm not trying to discount that. But it pales in comparison to delighting in the person of God himself. Being satisfied in him alone. Hmm. Romans 11. Oh. Whoa. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Ooh, I just lost my place there. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. They're past finding out. That's what it means. For who's known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's the point of the gospel. Commentator Leon Morris quotes a man named Smart, who I could not figure out who this smart guy was. It's not me. I'm a smart guy, but that's not me. <laughs> in, the com- in the commentary, it just says, Smart points out that quote. Listen, a pilot, a Judas, and a Jerusalem council can nail the Savior of the world to a cross. <laughs> but it is God who decides what that cross is to mean in the subsequent history of mankind. God did that. So the application point for God is learn that the point of all of this is that we get to be in and enjoy God himself. God, good all the time. 
Any promise keepers guys here? Come on, y'all. Good, I'm glad. No, I'm just kidding. Good. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, lost person. Everything that God does is good. God is good. And that's true of everything we've seen and looked at today in our passage of Scripture as we've explored the gospel. Everything. All this stuff that we've seen and all this doctrine in the gospel are doctrines to rejoice in. Now, do we need to wrestle with God through some of this? Oh, absolutely. But when you ask Him to bless you, He's going to touch your hip socket and you're going to limp the rest of your life because He says, I'm God and you're not. And even that limp is good. No. Put your butts up. (laughs) Put them up! But how can the fact that God chooses some people and not others be good? It's good. Because He's good. Do we weep for the lost? I hope we do. And one day God will wipe away every tear from every eye. And we'll enter into eternal rest, which is all good. These doctrines are doctrines to rejoice in. They're to bring relief from the hustle and bustle and struggle and suffering of the world. I don't want a God that's not omnipotent. I don't want a God that's not sovereign. I don't want a God that can't do what he chooses to do. Because that God's not God at all. Everything that God does is good. And these doctrines, all of them, the election of God, the responsibility of man, they empower us as Christians to preach this gospel. You know why? Because it can't fail. Because God can't fail. It's not up to me to save people. It is up to me to preach the gospel and then watch God save people. Is everybody that I preach the gospel going to believe? Are they all going to? No, I don't have that. I couldn't sleep at night if I thought that was the goal. Hope I couldn't. But every single one of God's elect, hand-chosen, picked people are going to believe the gospel. So I'm going to proclaim it. And that's really good news. All of these doctrines are good. God is Good. Psalm 1830. I've lost control of my iPad, by the way, John. Psalm 1830. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Perfect. True. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, we could say, the called because of the sentence construction according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When Jesus gets in the boat, you're already home. 
That's good. He's good. His plan is good. The doctrines are good. The gospel is good. Hell is good. God's just wrath is good. Now we don't celebrate it, but we worship him in light of it. Knowing if there was no justice in God, if there was no wrath in God, he wouldn't be good. Hitler deserves hell, doesn't he? So do I. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called Always Good. I'm going to read a snippet of it if I can get through it. My God, my God, be near me. There's nowhere else to go. And Lord, if you can hear me, please help your child to know that you're always good. Always good. As we try to believe what is not meant to be understood. Will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good? Because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. You're always good. Always good. It's easy to doubt the goodness of God when we think about hell and eternal punishment and wrath. He's always good. God, good gospel. The gospel is to be central to the Christian's life. All of it. Every single bit of it. From rebirth until we see Jesus face to face. The gospel is to be central to our lives. Individually, collectively, corporately. There is nothing more important than the gospel. There is no other way by which men will be saved than the gospel. You say, well, if God can pick whoever he wants to pick, he can just bring them to heaven. He has chosen not to do that. He has chosen to employ us. You are brave indeed, God, to preach the gospel so that people can be brought to new life. How important is it that we know, understand, implement, share, read, study, meditate on, immerse ourselves in the truths of the gospel? I'm not talking about just a canned presentation. That's important. I think you should have that in your hip pocket. A good outline to make sure you don't miss any of the important parts. But it's compact and concentrated enough that you can share it in just a few moments. And then watch and see what God does. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them in its blessings. And you can read that whole chapter and see what he's talking about. The point is he does everything he does for the sake of the gospel. We read Romans 1.16 and 17 earlier. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now what I want you to note about that is it's not just about hearing a message and being converted. It's about hearing a message and being converted and then living a life by faith in the power of that message. The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel was not just for your conversion. 
The gospel is for your sanctification. The gospel is what we need to grow in our holiness, to progress in our seeking God. It's the gospel that's going to empower us to do the things we need to do, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's the gospel that does that. So we don't hear the gospel, believe it, and never bring it up again. Or just preach it to unbelievers. We preach it to ourselves. We preach it to each other. We preach it to everybody. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. Faith in the goodness of God. Faith in the gospel. There is no rebirth without the gospel. There's also no progress in sanctification without the gospel. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. We read this and more last week. Paul says, I, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that guy who denied him three times, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who didn't believe in him while he was on the earth, before he died and came back to life. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born And you just feel the gratitude here. He appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But! Don't put that one up. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it wasn't I. It was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. That's the gospel. That is of first importance for our conversion, for our progressing in holiness, and to sustain us until we see Jesus face to face so that we might labor And may it be our goal to work harder than any of them. Knowing that it's not us, but it's the grace of God that's in us. And may we be those who preach. And may we pray and labor so that those may be the ones who believe. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. Those are five good, that's the EE outline right there. Evangelism explosion from years ago. Heaven's a free gift. You can't earn or deserve it. Man's a sinner. He deserves the just wrath of God. God is holy. He cannot allow sin into his presence. So God sent Christ to pay the penalty for the sins of his people so that they might be forgiven for their sins. And this gift of God is received through faith in the finished work of Christ. I spent an hour preaching it and I just spent 45 seconds preaching it. Master the gospel message to share. Master the gospel message so that you might have power to live like and for God. And may we never get so satiated with this word and this concept 
that we lose the truth and power of the gospel. May it never become meaningless or powerless to us. Let's pray. Father, your way is perfect. And your plan involves the gospel for the salvation of men's and women's souls. And if there be anyone here who has not trusted in this gospel, who has not believed this gospel, God, we wholeheartedly believe that it is your work to raise them to new life by the power of your Holy Spirit so that they might be born again from the dead, that they might put their faith in the finished work of Christ and receive the grace that you give freely. And for those of us who have trusted and have believed, God, may we trust and believe again and again and again and again and again. And may we know that the ultimate reward, the ultimate outcome of it all is that we get you. We get you, God. And may that urge us and spur us on. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We're going to have Silas and Shaley come up call for the elders of the church. Silas and Shaley have expressed interest in provisional membership, which means while they're here with us, they want to abide by the church covenant, and they do believe what we've put forth in our um, statement of faith, and they're already helping and laboring with the youth and other things, and we are glad to have you and to welcome us, welcome you into us and to share life with you. Um, so we've got the, the covenant there with a pen. See there, I even got a pen. Um, Been here, done this before. So basically, you sign and date individually together, and we witness that, and that's us welcoming you into our presence. Then we'll pray, and then we'll give a benediction, and we'll go eat. So, yeah, absolutely. So, if you can remember your names, sign them on that piece of paper, and put the date. And we are witnesses this day that you're doing it. And joyfully we welcome you into our covenant community. And do not, we do not and call you to not treat the covenant lightly. It is important as a solemn binding agreement. And we will love and serve you and you will love and serve us. And that's the purpose of the covenant that you signed today. And we are tickled. Church, would you join us in praying? Don, will you pray for him? And Bob, will you finish there? Lord, we thank you that you put solitary folks in the family. Mm. Thank you that we see that on a spiritual level. Thank you that young men and young women, the potential they have of service to you, we rejoice about. Lord, we rejoice even more that you say we're in Christ. Mm. He's
together and hear the wonderful words of God that uh, encourages us and shows us how we should live and how we should love. And Father, it truly it is a privilege to have them come. Mm -hmm. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would be with them, bless their family, give them encouragement, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for a benediction. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all the people of God say, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.